Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Patrick, I'm excited for you to be here today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we're at Han High Investments in Burlingame. They allowed us to use our conference room. Give a plug. I want to thank them. And we also have a live studio audience here for this recording. Now, Patrick, you have a book coming out, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a lot of things. But for our audience, can you give a little bit of history of your career up into this point? I went to business school to study finance in the 1980s, worked for an oil company for five years. That's where I learned after-tax cash flow analysis, which became a very important part of my investment career. Then after that, I went to Morningstar, where I was there. Uh, first uh, research director, and then became the CFO, left Morningstar and started teaching graduate level portfolio theory at UC Berkeley Extension, then started Aperio Group in 1999 and pulled from all of those experiences and areas of expertise as we looked at after-tax risk-adjusted cash flows for investors, but very grounded in portfolio theory and in the, all the research on, on active and, and indexed management. So let's go back before you started Aperio. UC Berkeley, huge institute, very famous. Morningstar, huge, very famous. There wasn't anything in that I heard. I started a couple companies. This is my <laughs> third endeavor. The first two failed, but we were VC backed. How did it go from those more institutional, those organizations to, hey, it's time for me to start my own company. Yeah. So I never had that moment. I hope that doesn't disappoint your viewers. No, I met somebody, my partner, Paul Soley, who co-founded a Perio group with me. He's an entrepreneur, had been thought, had that mindset and to the degree of how out of touch was I. When he said we could start a company, my first reaction was, you can do that? Which of course I knew legally and technically you could. The one big driving force for me was there were very few investment firms where I was going to be willing to work because I had a rule of, I'm not going to lie for any company's benefit. That excludes almost the entire investment industry if you have that rigid and, and fussy a requirement. So that was my personal motivation, though I wasn't really of the entrepreneurial mindset. And Paul had that vision, but he didn't know how to make it happen in terms of the mechanics and building the, the factory and the quantitative side. So it was a great pairing of, we each had a skill set, the other one was really missing. So with that, he found you, you complemented each other, but there was still that, okay, let's go out and do that. Let's go out and build a business from zero to when you exited Aperio, which you had, I believe, 42 billion assets under management. How do you go from zero, this is an idea, let's start to that end? So we were, we knew we were committed first to the ethics and profit second. Like we knew we were not going to, if it didn't work out financially, we were going to abandon it. We were never going to uh, violate our ethics. That was the only absolutely sure thing. So we got started through some good networking. We had a couple other partners join, very good salespeople, very good at making connections. And we started getting a little traction, but it's still I don't know, three, four years into it. People would ask, how's it going? And I'd say, too much of a success to be labeled a failure, but we're too much of a failure to be labeled a success. And we weren't sure where it was going to go. 
And then around 2004, so about five years in, it started getting some traction and really started capturing the imagination of our target market, the big independent, what are called RIAs, Registered Investment Advisors. And they started responding to our message and our new way of doing things. We had a very customized approach that you could only start doing because the technology made it possible that 10 years earlier, you just couldn't have done it with all the electronic trading and the very kind of automated processing. And so once we got that traction, we kept pushing on expanding that, that customization and the focus on what do clients need, even that they may not understand the Steve Jobs thing. If you don't develop something people say they want, you develop what they need and they don't even understand they need it. And that was our approach. And then how did we get to 42 billion? We also were very fortunate. We benefited enormously from the huge boom in indexing, which while I was a believer, I wouldn't have predicted. And the ultra high net worth space suddenly got a lot of traction, was a very attractive part of the market. And that was our entire focus. The environmental social governance thing, we added that and that what's called factor investing, which is a kind of version of active, but in a very cheap, passive delivery. That became very hot. So we just were in the right place with all of those uh, things going on at once. Wait, you said the right place. You said 2004, this kind of took off, but we're here in Silicon Valley. We had that dot-com crash right there at yep. 2000 when this yep. all started. Yep. Looking back, was it really right time, right place? It was in the sense that, sure, we, just when we started the business, the market blew up and it was very hard to get any meetings and traction because people were too depressed to invest in, in stocks. So in that sense, it was not ideal, but it was ideal in the sense of the, the technology allowing the possibilities of what we were doing. And there had been another competitor, a company called Parametric, that was first in the, I mean, Goldman Sachs was there, but Parametric was really the first one pushing it hard and successfully to these RIAs. So we came in and couldn't just replicate what they were doing. We had to do something special. And the differentiation for us was all about the, the customization. So that's the part that where the timing worked out. And then we were in the right place once the ESG and indexing and all that stuff took off. And then we just, that's where we were riding this bigger wave. Definitely going to ask a lot of questions later about ESG sure. and, and everything else. But I, before asking, and I also want to know about how it was so customer set centric, but before even that, yep. you're competing. You said Goldman Sachs and these huge, yep. monstrous yep. elephants in the room. Yep. Your size at that time, was everyone going, why should I listen to you? There, why not go with When we were tiny, guys? one, we had a family relationship very early on, the family that brought us some substantial assets. And that kind of put the credibility on the map. But the competitive advantage versus a huge firm is when you're willing to do things, they aren't. And we literally, had, I'm not making this up, I maybe had half a dozen times where someone would be you know, checking us out, interviewing us, going through the due diligence process. And they just told us a factually inaccurate statement. You can't be making any money doing it. I, I know for a fact you cannot be making money because you have too much customization. Did you miss the class in business school about standardization and automation for factories? And we're like, yeah, when Henry Ford <laughs> was building Ford, yeah, that was the case. You can do stuff that you didn't used to be able to do. And I think it was the mindset was why would you ever do that? And that's what was 
innovative and new for those people willing to take a risk with us. The other advantage we had was the, the old big, what are called wirehouse firms like Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs. They had been very dominant 30, 40 years ago and independent advisors were getting traction. But suddenly around the same time, the independent advisors started doing really well competitively, especially in the ultra net worth space. So that was another benefit that we were targeting this new niche market, or it wasn't a niche, but it was a new way of defining it in the ultra high net worth space. And that was part of what was innovative. And going back to all this customization, everything, that's heavy customer centric. Yes. Customer first. Now, yep. every company you talk to, they won't say customers last. They yep. always say customers first. Yes. So what does that mean to you? And what could our audience there's a lot of entrepreneurs. There's yep. a lot of founders out there. Yeah. What can they take away from? Sure. So my definition of customer first is, I think, probably more literally than many people mean when they say it, which is we, we would tell new hires for many years, you come and you find a situation, you're going to have to make a lot of calls on the fly. You find a situation where you could either do financial harm to the client or to the firm. You always do the financial harm to the firm. and so. Everybody embraces client service and client focus until the costs start binding. And we took a very different approach of client service. We'll try and figure out how to make it work financially. And what happened was we ended up focusing so much on the larger clients that we had the luxury of a customization at big average account sizes that wouldn't work at much smaller. So we were not going to be able to compete well more down in the retail end but no one was offering what we were doing up at the high end. So the, cus the customer obsession was not even so much a clever example of foresight. We didn't predict it would do well. It was more part of that same kind of ethical commitment. One, one of the partners who joined after we founded had what I labeled as a, he, he viewed the client as sacred. For me, the truth was sacred. We all had our own little ethics uh, a hot button issue. And for him, the client was sacred. If clients were unhappy, he was unhappy. And it was not about a carefully considered financial call. It was just about that's how you do business. And we operated the same way with staff. My, our two rules of thumb were as CEO, if I wouldn't want to work in this company at the lowest rung on the ladder, I've been an utter failure as a CEO. That's not a box I failed to check. I've been a complete failure because I'd been in so many situations at other companies where I would be really bothered by how management did things and that the, they wouldn't pay attention to what people in the trenches were actually doing. And I vowed we weren't going to be that way. And the same on the, the client side. We had vendors we worked with that were terrific partners and others that treated us like a dish rag from which you want to wring that extra drop of moisture. And then on the, the client side, we had these vendors where we would have a great relationship with them and others where they just wanted to wring every last drop uh, out of us. And they would talk about how much they value the relationship. And I've looked at things more literally. No, you treat us like dirt and other vendors were great. So we made this commitment. We're going to be like the vendors we like working with where it really is about a relationship first. So very focused on relationships. And that's not necessarily as quick and sexy as some approaches, but it worked very well for us. At the very beginning, how fast were you scaling? How many 
how quickly were you adding new people to the team? Is this something where the first four years it was you, your co-founder, and two, three yeah. others? Or was it every six no, months no. we doubled? No, first employee came in February of 2005. So five and a half years into it. And then even by 2009, we might have been at about 10, 11 employees. Then it started growing. It really started getting traction coming out of the 08, 09 meltdown. Like by 2010, 2011, we started doing a lot of hiring. I once uh, gave a guest lecture at a, a class at Stanford on company culture. And the students there all were wondering, like, how do you do real scaling? And I said, for culture purposes, we had a rule. We would never hire more than 50% headcount in a given year. And they were stunned at that. How do you go from 30 people to 6,000 in 18 months? Which, of course, for them was the goal. I said, that wasn't our goal. We were about our culture and integrity first and everything else had to follow that. And I wouldn't recommend that as an approach everybody should take, but I will say that the stereotype of if you grow that slowly, you're never going to make it big did not apply to us. We ended up doing very well financially in spite of that sort of ethics clients first attitude. So going back to the beginning, because you're in Silicon Valley, where on day one, before you have a product or idea, you have someone throwing money at you going, hey, let's yep. scale this. Let's make this yep. global. Yes. And especially, I would guess, with the clients you're working with, the high net worth individuals, probably a couple of them came to you early on and said, I like what you're doing. I want to invest in this and make it bigger. Did you take any cap outside capital at all in the early days? I'm not making this up. We never had any capital from anybody. If you count capital as long-term capital, I, we had some like payables we were covering that would get paid off six or nine months later. But like you count a one-year period, we had never had any outside capital ever in the history of the firm. Why that decision? Back to my motivation of I have to work at a place where I'm not going to have to lie. You take outside money, that's over. In my extreme, rigid, ethical view, once... Once you're working for somebody else, the, the shift is going to be on the profitability. The fun thing that was fun to watch was we were always profitable. We never had uh, a negative cash flow or financial or, or gap-based year ever. And that was because we wanted that control. And, and I'm a cheap uh, SOB by reputation. And so I just didn't want to do it that way. And that meant patience and you had to be slower in your expectations, but it ended up really paying off. The, the big benefit for me, it wasn't the big dollar payoff at the end. It was that you can grow a company and ground it in some really high-end ethics. So you don't have to pick one or the other. And that was, I think, the most satisfying part of the entire experience. So during this whole time, you're scaling. Yep. You'd mentioned that the your niche really came with that high net worth individual yep. that big yep. account yep how did you have access to these people and going back a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs they're yep. starting companies they yep. want access to these people right. they can't access how do you well, get a hold of them because we weren't going directly we were going through their wealth advisors but the advantage we had was we were focused exclusively on the ultra high net worth space. Our economics wouldn't allow us to compete in the retail. 
And that meant we could do things in a world where that customization was viewed, again, as a high cost. And I was thrilled, in spite of being a cheap SOB, I was thrilled at the fact that I bet our client service costs were a lot higher than other people's, and I bet our recruiting costs were a lot higher because we spent an enormous amount of time making sure people were going to fit the, the culture well. So it was a very slow, patient, I'm not the most patient person, but it ended up paying out well and in spite of that slower approach. Okay, now the culture, the company... When I was doing some research, I discovered the three hat rule. Yes. Now, what is the three hat rule <laughs> for our listeners? Sure. So the three hat rule was something we made up around, basically around ego and how it plays into decision making. And so the three hats you can wear at any company are you as an individual. I'm looking out for me. I'm going to say something or ask for something that benefits me. And the second one is for my department. I'm speaking for a team, but for my department within the company. And the third hat is for the entire company. And the way we described it was everybody's going to wear one of those hats at various times. So when looking at the three hats, the only real sin at Aperio was if you were pretending to wear the company hat. And in fact, you were looking out for yourself. And that we just did not want to tolerate. But that requires a fair amount of self-awareness. It, it requires a lot of trust that you're not going to get shot down for being honest about your motivations. We were very focused on the best decision-making comes from humility, keeping egos uh, at bay. And I learned that myself as a CEO, even before I was CEO, the more kind of proactively acknowledging the stuff I was bad at, the better I got at the stuff I was good at. And I thought that I'm speculating. I'm, I'm guessing that's because you don't have to put any of your energy into pretending someone you're not. And so we were fixated on this. You can be ambitious at this firm, but you claim to have a skill set that the people around you don't think you have. That's not going to go well here. So be ambitious, but you better justify it. And then we ended up with building jobs around people rather than the other way around. So the stuff people were, were really good at, make sure that's their job and make sure everyone's fairly clear on the stuff they're bad at. And I would try and set that lead with very long list of the stuff I was, I was bad at. Now you mentioned a focus on what you're good at, not what you're bad at. And also you mentioned at the very beginning that you weren't even sure you could actually start a company. Yep. So how did you change either as a leader or your management style or that through this process of going from you and your co-founder yep. to now a, a full company yep. team. Yep. How is the development as an individual, as the CEO? It, it forces you to grow up. I'll, I'll quote my father, who's had enormous influence on me, as has my mother. He, uh, my sister asked him once what he wished he'd known early in his marriage about how marriage really works. And he said, I love this answer. It's so my father. I didn't realize how much of your own crap and garbage being married forces you to confront. And that's my view of power and authority in running a company is it'll feed your most unsavory instincts and you have to stay on top of that. So the journey for me was, as I said, growing up and expanding skills, had a lot of help, big fan of executive coaching. I benefited with it. In fact, I had two coaches, one, and then we had a new one working with me and the people around me started observing six weeks after I'd started working with her 
something's different about you. Like you're speaking with much more confidence and something's going on. I was like, yeah, I can't take any credit for that. that. That's my coach telling me what to do. And and then also the combination of, of sort of personal development with this fixation on the culture. It's got to be grounded in the truth. The company name, Aperio, that's a Latin verb to make clear, reveal the truth. Obviously, the first implication of that is with your clients, but it also meant, no, no, internally, you have to tell the truth even when it's painful. In fact, that's how I define when you really know you're telling the truth is when it costs you. And so that was part of my personal element too around, all right, what kind of person are you going to be? And having complained and kvetched about big egos ruining management decisions for years, I f one of the unpleasant lessons I learned was I was a lot better at complaining about poor culture instead of establishing a really healthy one, which is very hard to do. You'd mentioned having a, a coach and we've had people on the podcast in the past, Cheryl Spielberg, talk about she had a coach for the year before getting acquired. We had Sam Wong, who's a startup CEO coach on our show. He's had a couple of successful exits before. When do you think would be the best time for a founder of a company or anyone to seek out a professional coach to help their career? I'm not being flippant in this answer. Day one. Because the way I view the benefits of a coach are who wouldn't want someone who polishes your better parts and keeps your worst instincts or traits from causing trouble. And so it's a way to keep yourself honest. It's the way to keep people around you honest. We did a lot of uh, conflict mediation. So I would say day one, if you can stomach it, it's very hard because if you're going to do coaching right, you are going to learn a lot of things about yourself you do not like. That's the proof it's working because reality runs into your self-image. And obviously one of those is the real thing. The other is your fantasy. And it's a constant learning curve on the stuff you're bad at, the things you thought you were good at uh, that you're not, and how to work through that in as uh, healthy a way as possible. With that, and I guess you'd say constant gut check as the leader of, of a company, how often should that CEO be reviewed for if maybe they're a little bit out of their league? Yep. I would say no less than annually because the challenge is as you grow as a firm, the skill set that got you from four people to 10 is about being very scrappy. You may do a lot of stuff on a shoestring and it works because you're not, you don't have that much stress on the system. When you're at 50 people and a mistake, say, on the system side is incredibly expensive, it could put you out of business, you do not want to do it on a shoestring. And you need a very different mindset and skill set. So you need to constantly be checking in no less than once a year, but also about, am I growing with this role? And most managers are not really qualified to answer that for themselves. One of my rules of thumb is you ask someone if they're self-aware, almost everyone will tell you they are. That's not relevant. What's relevant, you ask the people around them. Is she self-aware? Is he self-aware? That's where it really comes out. And that's the discipline I think you need to, I would, I would recommend strongly everyone impose. But I do not want to downplay the kind of psychic cost. This is not easy. Right there, I think you, you kind of answered it, the asking the people around the person for their strengths and weaknesses, or is there a better way to go about doing that of 
finding out, hey, maybe I should pass this on to someone else. Maybe I shouldn't be working on this. I'm actually better at this other. How do you discover those strengths? For me, the best is you ask other people. It's like a jury system. You get 12 people and you're going to get consensus. And when a lot of people agree on one of your flaws, you have nowhere to hide. Sure, you could have one person, you got some friction that could go either direction. The, the way we did that as a board, when we sold uh, a majority stake to uh, Golden Gate Capital in 2018, one of the very first things I wanted to do was impose this for the CEO, have someone come in, do the review, talk to I think about 15 people and report to the board without me there. And the highest compliment I got in that process was the consultant, this very high-end HR advisor. She'd worked at Apple for many years. She'd worked a lot with boards. She said, Patrick, I got to tell you, my career, I've been brought in many times for issues between a CEO and a board. I've never been brought in by the CEO. I was always brought in by the board. And I just took that. That was the goal. Because in my mind, when you don't start that accountability at the top, you're not going to have real accountability. Okay. Now let's also talk about kind of changes in the overall industry from when you started in 2000 to current. When you started from research, Everything seemed to be at least more commission-based, and then it pivoted to assets under management. How did this impact what was going on, the success or the decisions made yeah. with your group and the industry as a whole? Yeah. So that shift had actually started, I would say, more like 10 years earlier, like before I was at Morning. So the 80s was still very much this commission Thing. The big shift, obviously, in, in the 1970s when with the Big Bang. But the what that shift meant was that the advisor was no longer focusing on, on selling uh, transaction-based strategies, but they were still selling strategies. What's happened is the industry has evolved to almost everything is now under what's called AUM, assets under management. The problem is that model is now under some stress because the AUM model presumes that the client is best served by that approach rather than, say, a traditional lawyer or accountant who charges retainer by the hour. So we were benefiting from that transition in the sense that the big RAAs were providing some serious competition to the wirehouses as part of that sort of new revenue model. And we benefited greatly from that evolution of the industry. And even bringing in more changes in the industry here, Silicon Valley, we love technology. We love computer, this big data, that everything. Robo-advisors, machine learning, artificial intelligence. How has that impacted the industry? So the robo side is very interesting in that it offers some real benefits. It's very simple, fairly easy to understand. It focuses a lot on fees and taxes. So in that sense, it's a very good thing. The downside is... I think part of the problem, it's what is in my book, is that many investors don't quite understand what services they need or actually what's available and what's worth paying for. So the robos are good at a kind of prefab delivery, but they're not good at the kind of mess that we all have in our financial lives. The very wealthy have particular mess and you need people to deal with that. So on the robo side... I think it's net good to have that choice available. On the AI and the kind of technology is going to predict markets, that I found I find a little more far-fetched because one of the things AI experts forget when they're trying to persuade me that, that my world is <laughs> antiquated is AI models 
are not an, an exogenous variable. They're an endogenous variable. They are inside the market and they are part of what drives the market. So you can't have AI always fixing itself. It, markets are still very emotion and human driven. Lots of interesting stuff going on there, but I think you hear me talk about humility. The humility angle, I think is very important. There are real limitations to AI and there are things it can do that humans can't that are great for scaling other types of automation, seeing certain patterns, but like basically taking over markets, I don't think that's very likely. Now, in that you talked about that outside, that emotion part, can you talk a little bit about behavior economics and just the whole study of that behavior in finance and the impact in the industry? Sure. So fascinating evolution. The, the, the big breakthroughs in, in kind of portfolio theory started in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s with the, the capital asset pricing model, things like that, some options models. And that was great stuff. It added enormous insight to what had been a not very well-defined field in terms of, of theory. The problem was it was all predicated on you and I are both very rational beings. We look at what's the best choice and we act accordingly. And you don't have to look very far outside of finance. Like, really? Do people ever make bad choices in their love lives, in their dietary choices? And so it brought a whole new kind of, you have to look at homo sapiens. We're weird creatures. We're often irrational. We're an interesting blend. We're very smart, but we're also self-deceiving and much more driven by our emotions and the unconscious than we like to pretend. And so behavioral finance has highlighted a number of areas where most investors are blind and actually were led to poor decision-making because the brain was evolving, say homo sapiens are what, three, 400,000 years old. The brain that evolved was great for surviving on uh, as a hunter-gatherer, but terrible in a modern high-tech world. And so that's been a great benefit, I think, introducing the quirky, weird side of human behavior. Now talk about gamification, and, and we'll leave companies' names out here, but it's in the news a lot yep. about these push notifications yep. and everything else. How does this gamification, is it a net good or net bad for the industry, for new investors? So you ask two different questions there. Is it a net good for the industry or a net good for new investors? Let's say it's, investors. It's, I'll be very opinionated here. It's awful for investors. Why? Because it's playing on our worst instincts and the data show that the best investors, say retail investors, are determined not by how smart they are, but by their behavior, their constancy, their very long-term horizon, and the fact that they don't tweak their, their back to the humility thing. They've made a bet on stock market for the long-term, whatever blend of stocks and safer assets, and then they don't mess with it. And that's what makes large numbers of investors very successful, is ironically doing nothing. And the gamification is predicated on the exact opposite approach of you got to be in there. It's been 30 minutes since you looked at your phone, Sean, <laughs> and you call yourself an investor. That's how pathetic. As opposed to my viewpoint is I recommend people look at their portfolios every maybe one to three years. Now, everyone at home, this is not investment advice. All the <laughs> other disclaimers that will be in the show notes on this one. But OK, going back to your career, what differentiated your group versus everyone else. You'd mentioned impact investment or yeah. impact. 
now there's a lot of hype, especially in Silicon Valley. I would say yep. in the last month, I've had half dozen conversations. We're an ESG startup or we're an ESG this, ESG that. Yep. Tell me about how ESG, uh, and that's environmental uh, sustainability and, or social and governance. How's that in, impact in the markets invest in? How is that being brought into conversations? Well, that's a big, broad question. As I often irritate people giving the economists answer, well, on the one hand, and this will be no different, I think what's very positive is investors do care about things more than just risk return features of their investment. They care about some and some don't. Some care about the, the ESG side of things. The fact that's now getting much more respect is a very positive thing. The downside is, like all parts of investing, there are some smart, low-cost ways of doing it, and there are some very expensive ways where there's a lot of pandering going on. So as an investor, incorporating ESG is, if you want to, is um, something you should look at. It can be a very positive thing, but you need to be very careful that you're not being fed a lot of stuff by an industry that's glomming on to ESG as a new way to sell things. And so you should always be a, a caveat emptor, a cautious buyer in, of financial services, but in ESG in particular. But don't get so cynical that you think it's all just to uh, pander to you and, and play on your longings. There is some great, There are some great offerings out there, but you need to be very cautious. And then also doing some research for this interview, Negative screening versus positive screening for ESG. Yep. What's the difference? So negative screening has been around since the 19th century, since abolition days. That meant I don't want to own your company because I don't agree with what are some of the most common ones. Tobacco. I think tobacco is a bad health thing. And other people think tobacco companies are great. Negative screening is I don't want to own the things that make me feel bad about my portfolio. Positive screening says... Well, what about investing in clean energy and things you want to overweight because they're on the right side of things ethically? And they're both very appropriate. They are also both um, at risk of being distorted. And then you can engage even in even more ways. You can, even just through the stock market, you can engage in uh, proxy voting to fit your values or shareholder engagement. So there's a lot of choices and, and a lot of things through, through private equity that you can invest very directly into things that may satisfy your ESG longings, cravings as an investor. And to dive a little bit into your book, and we're going to talk about it more and all our, we can't do a financial investment recommendations, but we can do book recommendations here <laughs> on the show. You talked about pre-tax profit and post-tax profit, one taken credit for and one not. Yeah. Please share. Sure. This was something I learned at, at the oil company. We did everything based on after-tax cash flows. And if we'd gone before the board of directors, I, I worked in the a chemical subsidiary in, in Switzerland for a while. And if we'd gone to the board of directors and said, we want you to approve a $200 million polypropylene plant. And they'd ask, did you include the tax impact? No, come on. It'll all come out in the wash. They'd have, we'd have lost our jobs. They'd have thrown us out. So I get over to the investment space and I'm shocked at why are taxable investors ignoring this? So I would argue that everyone understands that after-tax returns are irrelevant for, say, a, a big pension plan, a, a defined benefit pension plan. They're tax-exempt. They don't have to worry about it. 
and they should ignore it and view after-tax returns as irrelevant. But a taxable investor, they should view pre-tax returns as equally irrelevant because they have to pay taxes. And the industry is slowly shifting, but still resistant to that idea. And then what about your experience with your exit itself? A lot of our founders, or not founders, audience, their goal is to start their company for that successful exit to one day either, they always say go public, but more realistically, get acquired. How did you decide when it was the right time to get acquired? How did you prepare yourself? And go into as much detail as you'd like, because I might clip this little bit for the investment banker part of me to advertise. We were looking at sort of succession planning was one of the big products for all this. And we started looking around 2015 and I was thinking, I'd probably want to do this for quite a while. But then by 2017, I started noticing I need to make a shift in terms of my lifestyle. I was, I turned 60 in, in 2018 and I knew I was turning 60. And so we started looking for a partner that would take a majority equity stake. So that was the big play. And that was driven by demographics, I like to say, of aging out. And we looked at a really wide range of choices. We looked at ESOPs, we looked at being acquired by someone, we looked at private equity, and we ended up choosing a private equity firm that was going to leave us, uh, or so they told us, uh, leave us to run the business. They were going to be involved. And then that was a very good choice. I was very pleased with that. And then what came was this sort of bidding frenzy of the space we were in suddenly got incredibly popular. And our private equity firm said, look, I know we'd talked about the long term, but we have a fiduciary duty to our fund investors and we cannot pass up this hot opportunity. And so we didn't really decide to get acquired in that sense by an operating company. We decided to get acquired by a private equity, but it, it all worked out actually fine because we're still allowed to keep a lot of that ethos and that, that sort of research innovation as far as I can see. And for a founder that has that exit in his mind in a few years, not, not your story, but the people that you help, the yep. high net worth individuals, yep. how far in advance should they be thinking financially their exit, what they're going to do with the money, that plan in part, is that, could that be done after the exit or should this really be years in advance? So the, the actual planning of the process, I would say no fewer than five years, 10 is better for the actual legal side. And what kind of exit do you want? What matters to you? Is it the name brand? Is it a big company that can take over? Is it just the price? Whatever it is, the actual portfolio side you should start thinking about it I don't, maybe a year before the actual liquidity event to know what you want to do, what's important, and what your intentions are for that money. I've worked with centimillionaires where they wanted to give it all away and others that wanted to flip that into $2 billion. And then you go through all those choices and trade-offs. So you don't need to do it way in advance compared to the, the actual succession plan and, and company side. And then a personal question, how does changing the mindset, the focus of what you can change and what you can't change, how does that completely change someone's life? So this is one of the big points I make in the book. It's back to the humility angle that as from the 12-step the uh, process, in the Bay Area in particular, 
people know that well, the grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage, things I can, and the wisdom to tell the difference. And I've found in business decision-making that is incredibly value in investing in particular, it's paramount. And the whole idea of indexing versus active boils down to what can you control? And the problem with investing is you can control the parts you can control are the boring parts. Fees are the biggest and easiest thing to control and then taxes. And people would look at like, yeah, those matter, but it's returns. That returns are the most random. And that's the, the hardest part. Acknowledging what you can control and what you can't is hard, especially if you're an entrepreneur and you went from a company with a value of nothing to a hundred million and you created it yourself. You probably think, wow, I'm good at this. I'll do the same thing in the investment space. Very different set of rules, set of competition. And you're going to have a much harder time. I would say it's close to impossible repeating that. You may be a great entrepreneur. You could start another company and make another hundred million. But to beat the stock market is extremely rare. That sort of 10 to 20% of active managers can do that. So that's where that humility really pays off for an entrepreneur. And your book is being released as we talk right now as this episode goes live. Who are the ideal readers for this book? Who sh out there should immediately go pre-order it now or pick it up on Amazon? Yeah. So it's for people who are intimidated by investing. It's for experienced investors who know that market and world, but want to read the real research. It's for those suspicious. They may not always be getting the, a straight line from the industry. It's not a good book for active day traders. It's not a good book for those who are, never want to think about doing it themselves. And they're very happy in a relationship with an advisor. You could learn some stuff on it or that people who are doing it themselves and are all set with index funds. Again, you could pick up some things. What's different about it is the emphasis on the psychology and the mindset. And I, that's where I think people can probably pick up the most value is this blend of the research on our brains and the research on financial markets. So it's uh, very appropriate for people who want to educate themselves about investing. I would describe it as the way it really plays out, not the way it's sold because almost all investment advice is selling something. And Patrick, what's the name of the book? And if anyone wants to find out more information about you and the book, what's the best way to go about doing it? So the book title is Transparent Investing. And my website has lots of information, some free downloads and tools. That's patrickgeddes.co, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-G-E-D-E-S.co. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. Once again, I want to thank Hanhai Investments, the incubator here in Burlingame for allowing us to use their facility. I want to thank Robert Strong, who made the introduction to Patrick, which allowed this interview to happen. If anyone out there is looking for the top magician in Silicon Valley, check out Robert. You can find him on LinkedIn. And I want to thank Sapien, who made Sapien Impact, who made the introduction to Robert at one of our live recordings there. If anyone here is in Silicon Valley, we host a live recording in Menlo Park once a month. And for the entrepreneurs out there, business owners, if you are looking for a mid-market investment banker, please connect with me. I focus on acquisitions, merger, growth capital, and secondaries. 
can find me. My information's in the show notes or on my LinkedIn, Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. And with that, Patrick, I want to thank you for taking the time today to come all the way out here. I know it's quite a drive, but I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast and everyone out there that's listening to this. I know you're going to listen to it multiple times. Give us a great review on iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. It encourages us to create more information. Once again, Patrick, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.